Welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast, brought to you by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. Now, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. If you celebrate or not for Easter, uh, we didn't have our Monday episode as I'm assuming many of you had also been on either a short vacation with family, so on and so forth. I was in the same or similar boat. But we are updating for this Thursday. Now, there's a whole lot of information to go through, and it's it's been a little hard to parse through what exactly we should cover. There's been a decent amount occurring overseas. There's been developments in the geopolitical space. There have been developments in U.S. or domestic equity markets. A lot has been happening. Now, usually on these Thursday podcast episodes, we don't cover the market. And I'll save that again for Monday's episode next week. There isn't anything I'm noticing as of yet that would be too much of a, you know, too much cause for concern when it comes to the stock market. So we can cover that then, besides maybe Bitcoin, which has been seeing some relatively interesting action. Same thing with some precious metals. But what I did find rather interesting was the Federal Reserve posts every week something called the H8. And the H8 is essentially a coverage of the assets and liabilities of commercial banks in the United States. And what this data shows is essentially that what is on the asset side and the liability side of all of these domestic commercial banks in the United States. Now, it's very interesting data. There's a lot of data. And a lot of this data is a little hard to parse through unless you can really break it down. So the Federal Reserve posts this information and a website like YCharts is actually really good at visualizing a lot of this data. So if you are interested in doing this and looking at this information, head over to H8 Assets and Liabilities of Commercial Banks in the U.S. on YCharts' website. And you'll begin to see the problem. Now, not only are we seeing contraction in the H8 assets. And this is broken down in many different manners. So for one, let's take this one as, as an example. U.S. commercial banks, bank credit. Very important component of the American and global economy. You want to have 
a decent amount of credit in the system so that the system can operate efficiently. Well, what have we seen? Well, as of March 15th, total bank credit in the U.S. stood at $17.6 trillion. Fast forward to March 29th, well, that value has dropped to $17.3 trillion. Now, if you take a look at this value over the 10-year period, you can go all the way back, at least in the Y charts, to 2018. That's the max that they have available. There hasn't been a drawdown of any kind all the way since May 23rd of 2018. There hasn't once been a drawdown of more than maybe you know, 10 billion or so. You know, it's very hard to tell with very small deviations, maybe back in June. Okay, at June of June of 2021, we had 15.6 and that fell to 15.58. That's the only other major drawdown I'm seeing here. But 17.6 to 17.3. Okay, well, that's just one. We're seeing bank credit disappear. Well, what else do we have? Well, we've got commercial bank borrowing. Now, commercial bank borrowing is relatively simple. It's banks that are borrowing capital in order to facilitate whatever kind of activity it is that they need. And this one, if you take a look again at the Y chart, you'll see back in 2020, as the world tipped headfirst into the abyss of what would then become the next three years, we saw bank borrowing rise from a stable $1.96 trillion in February of 2020. And that's essentially where bank borrowing had been for the last year. And that spiked in March of 2020 to $2.32 So a big jump almost 400 billion in additional bank borrowing following this period with economic well with the economic fallout of what came afterwards bank borrowing commercial bank borrowing dipped to 1.7 1.6 and averaged around there between 2021 22 into 2023, we started to see this bank borrowing rise again. And that was synonymous with a whole lot of different activities. There was the reopening elements of it. <clears throat> Behavioral patterns started to return to normal. Then the economy began to, well, reassess its current state and emerge from the sort of artificial constraints that were the last two years. And so we started to see bank borrowing rise again. 
And that's not necessarily too concerning in and of itself, a gradual rise in bank borrowing as confidence returns to the system. But then, March 8th, if we remember when Silicon Valley Bank went under, it was March 10th, that Friday. March 8th, bank borrowing was $1.947 trillion. March 15th, bank borrowing rose to $2.49 trillion, a rise of nearly $500 billion. So that degree of acceleration in bank borrowing tells us something else. It is, this isn't a gradual rise in bank borrowing synonymous with an economy and a banking sector that is slowly beginning to increase its activity in the borrowing space. No, this is a banking system panicking for collateral and capital. And we can expect that to be the case. But what's important is that following this time period, this bank borrowing continues. March 22nd, 2.5. March 29th, 2.5 again. So we're seeing sustained borrowing at these elevated levels. And if you've been listening to this podcast, we've also been seeing this type of concern present itself in the yield curve. Or not just the yield curve, but even in the individual treasury securities themselves with the rate of buying in these securities and the actual rates falling to a near historic degree, right? A rush for collateral, a continued rush for collateral. This, you know, comes back to the point of Silicon Valley Bank may have gone under as a result of internal problems with that institution. But that doesn't mean it was simply an isolated case. All of these banks are interconnected. They all participate in the same global monetary interconnected international ledger system that is the euro dollar system. It's essentially one big global ledger and each of them have their own components and values and assets and liabilities just swash and switch hands and wash around the system and circulate and so on and so forth. Okay, what else do we have here? I'm just going through all of these to get to eventually a point I'm trying to make. Another big one here. A very big one, actually. U.S. commercial banks, treasury, and agency securities for mortgage-backed securities. This one's a little different. Following again 2020, and really following 2019. So, if you all remember, in September of 2019, we had the big repo spike, the big repo fails, all of the, the craze and, and the overnight lending markets following that time period and a little bit before we started to see a rise in 
holdings of mortgage-backed securities. And a lot of the reasons for this is you know, a bank wants to pad their balance sheet. They want to add a little bit of risk aversion. They want to maybe get into the mortgage space a little more. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why any individual certain bank will begin to buy mortgage-backed securities. They're also used as collateral. So back in 2022, we saw a peak, and this is expected, of around $2.975 trillion. That was a peak back in March of 2022. Following that, there was a bit of a decline, a gradual decline, as the global economy started to slow, Banks in response started to de-risk from these securities in a very small sense, from, say, 2.9 all the way down to 2.8, 2.75. And, you know, not a huge and significant drawdown. There was a lot of buying and then, subsequently, a decent amount of selling. But what happened in March of 2023. Well, not much. On the 8th of March, the total number of mortgage securities held on commercial balance sheets in the U.S. was 2.73 trillion. On March 15th, 2.72 trillion. Not a whole lot. But then what happened? The weeks following this, the continuation of problems in the monetary space presented themselves even further. And this was with Credit Suisse. You know, the on-run, the continuing effects. On March 22nd, we started to see a precipitous fall in the levels and the holdings of mortgage-backed securities. Where from, remember, the 15th it was $2.72 trillion. Well, on the week of the 29th of March, it fell to $2.58 trillion, A very rapid decline in very short order. Again, that tells you systemic deleveraging, risk aversion, sale of collateral in order to raise liquidity, capital, credit, interbank, between the bank and the bank partners, but inside the bank and on their own balance sheet. Why would they do this? Expectation of future volatility. So you sell your collateral in order to raise cash to pad the balance sheet in case continuing problems in the financial and monetary space. What else do we have here? Deposits. Big one here. Again, if you look at deposits, <clears throat> you can expect following 2020, the fall in 2020, we had $4.5 trillion in stimulus and many different may, ways, means, and forms of such 
And I actually didn't know this. But deposits, U.S. commercial bank deposits in January of 2020 were only about $13.4 trillion. By July of 2020, those had risen to $15.5 trillion. $2 trillion. Deposits rose by $2 trillion in a matter of months. I, I did not know that. Well, what does that mean? That means rapid expansion of dollar lending. So the 2020 into 2021 time frame was massive dollar lending globally, right? When U.S. banks have more reserves, more fractional reserving, more fractional reserve banking, more lending, more credit creation, more dollars get circulated in the global economy. What have we seen recently, though? In 2022, this trend stopped. We flatlined in February and March after reaching a peak of $18.1 trillion in bank deposits. Remember, bank deposits were only 13 Point three in February of 2020. They rose five trillion in the matter of around about two years. That's an enormous acceleration in deposits. But this deposit growth stalled at around 18.1, 18.12. And started to decline. Following the collapse of SVB, what did we see? We saw bank deposits fall from 17.6 trillion to 17.19. Another precipitous fall in very short order. But what does this specifically do? Well, we can take a page from the Silicon Valley Bank book. What happened with Silicon Valley Bank? I know we've discussed this on this podcast before, but what happened was the bank itself had on its balance sheet somewhere near 90 billion, I believe, in long-term securities, long-term held maturity securities, right? Something they have to hold on their balance sheet until obviously these securities mature and then they can get the par value plus interest. But obviously because of the conditions, the treasury conditions, bond conditions in the last decade or so, you can get these bonds at very low rate, high bond value. Obviously as rates started to rise, bond value started to fall. And we mentioned this, I believe, on one of the last podcasts. On the balance sheet of these banks, specifically European banks, but same type of process here. We've got the accumulated and other comprehensive income part of each bank's balance sheet that holds in them unrealized gains and losses on investments, pension plans, and hedging transactions. These are 
usually the available for sale or held to maturity traded securities. So that's where a lot of the problem lies. And when you have a bank that is sitting on very large unrealized losses of maybe 15, 20, 40% on the bonds that they own, and they have very little hedging structured on their balance sheet in order to compensate for these unrealized losses. The risk isn't specifically the bonds themselves. The risk is the bank's capacity to finance the bank's liquidity. Where does that come from? That comes from the deposits. So long as a bank can maintain its deposits, grow deposits, as long as it's, you know, if it's sitting on unrealized losses from these bonds, in theory, it's able to maintain the unrealized losses until they just wait until maturity. They can wait until maturity, look at the par value. And then nothing is wrong. But when they start to see deposit outflows, and that doesn't necessarily mean that capital and money is leaving the ledger the global ledger that could just mean that individuals are moving their <clears throat> bank deposits from bank a into bank b or into a money market mutual fund you get the picture it's it's not the 1930s 1920s style bank runs of running into a bank kicking open the vault you know grabbing a handful of your own cash and then running away and putting it under your mattress that's not what we're seeing. But the impact on a bank is nevertheless drastic. So you see bank deposits flow out of the bank. The bank now needs capital to operate. Well, they're going to have to start to realize the losses on their treasury positions therefore losing whatever that value is from the bonds that they held to maturity since they'd have to be forced to sell in order to raise capital. When you see bank deposit outflows on this large of a scale throughout the entire U.S. domestic system, the question is, what other banks will be impacted. What are we missing here? Because it isn't just Silicon Valley Bank. It isn't just Signature Bank. It isn't just Credit Suisse. All of these financial institutions are interconnected. They're all connected by this ledger system, this global monetary ledger euro dollar system. It's all one. They're all components. They're all, you know, a great way to think of it is just different neural network neural nodes in a brain. You know, you know how you see the picture of a brain and there's, you know, these blue dot kind of things sitting all over the place and they're all interconnected and they all have these little, you know, lines connecting them and there's the electrical pulses or whatever it is going from one node to another. It's the same thing with the banking system. The, the banking system and the global monetary system is built like a brain, really. Yeah, essentially it is. It's an artificial fiat monetary brain, which, which facilitates the function of the entire global economy. And that might give you a little bit of a hint to all the dollar doomsdayers who say that the dollar is going to be gone in about T minus 30 seconds. 
But <laughs> moving on from that point. So these are just some of the elements of what we're seeing in the US banking system specifically. What we're seeing here is systemic deleveraging. I would argue we're seeing the conditions arise for systemic deflation. <clears throat> Maybe we're not seeing outright deflation yet. We're not seeing deflation in the terms of prices falling. I wouldn't consider that deflation the same way I wouldn't consider prices simply rising as inflation. You know, That's why I have a, a fundamental issue with the consumer price index being used as a barometer for inflation while well, consumer prices are simply just consumer prices. Inflation, I would argue, going back to historically maybe to the Austrian model of the early 20th century or late 19th century would be expansion in the monetary base, which devalues the currency. And that's a little different when it comes to a reserve currency such as the U.S. dollar, where in order to facilitate that currency's strength, it needs to continuously be expanded. Hence, Triffin's paradox or Triffin's dilemma. Then that's a whole that's a that's a road we can go down at some other day. But this gives us an idea of what it is that the money players in this system are doing. There's concern, despite the regulators in Europe, the U.S., the politicians, and the Yellens and Powells and von der Leyen's and whoever else continuously saying the same line of things are fine, everything's stable, everything's good. The data tells a different story. The real participants in this system, not the you know, bureaucratic overseers of some parts of the system, the real players in the system are saying something very different. They're saying and showing by action that this isn't simply a confined problem. The same way that Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns weren't the you know, confined issues of 2008. This is a broad problem. This is a broad and systemic problem in the entire, something has gone wrong in the ledger system. I think that's a great way to really think about this entire thing is that, yeah, one bank or one institution may be hit with to a greater degree than other institutions, but that doesn't mean no other institution isn't being affected. They are all being affected. What happens to one bank is going to have, in some varying degree, an impact on near every other bank involved in this ledger, in this global, interconnected, monetary ledger system. And that's, I think, where regulators and politicians and maybe even economists fail to realize the reality of, of they fail in, in the fact they look at the domestic banking system or banking as a whole as individual banks participating in a system independently. To some degree, yes, that's obviously true. But to 
a greater degree and a more important degree, that isn't the case. They are all interconnected. If some security, some asset class on Deutsche Bank's balance sheet begins to see tremendous volatility, you know, say some type of security, maybe backed by mortgages of some type. That isn't just going to be Deutsche Bank that's affected. It's all different institutions which have similar like securities on their own balance sheet. So that's how the system works. And that's how the system has always worked, going all the way back to sort of the birth of this entire global ledger system in the mid to late 50s. And you could go, I mean, arguably you could go back to the 20s with the moving away from the sterling into the dollar system following World War One, where countries had a tumultuous exchange rate regime and then World War II and then they centralized it and so on and so forth. You get the picture, but you can say it starts back more solidly in the mid to late 50s. I'm being lost here. I'm getting a little lost, but that's the H8. Now there's a whole lot more that I want to go through. So there's, I mean, there's an, an IMF, um, there, it is there, there, this is the monthly, I have the link up here somewhere. It is, okay, here it is. <laughs> Apologies. This is the International Monetary Fund's World Economic Outlook for April of 2023. Now, we're not going to go through this today. It's 206 pages. Um, I will leave it in the link for the podcast to, for any of you to, to go through and read. The only reason I had it up was Jeffrey Snyder had done a recent video discussing um, interest rate swaps some of the problems and compression in the swap regime, which gives us more insight into what's happening in the money market, which is sort of what we covered today from the H8 data, but we're seeing what this H8 data is doing to drive decision-making in each one of these banks. So I think it's very important. Go, go watch that episode with Jeffrey Snyder because I, what we covered today is directly linked to what he covers as well. Um, IMF report is interesting. It's, it's sort of what you'd think it would be. It's a little more, well, bureaucratic in nature. Um, you know, expectation for recovery and China reopening and, you know, this stochastic model and this projection and this whatever else. And they do mention a couple of times that, well, yeah, the, the banking problems we're seeing may create a uncertain future for economic outlook as we head into the second half per se of 2023 and into 2024. But we're not going to look into that too much because, you know, who knows? And, you know, we'll make a couple of comments on it, but Nevertheless, 
if you are bored and have nothing to do for a couple of hours and want to read through 206 pages of bureaucratic speak from the International Monetary Fund, please go ahead. I will provide you with the resources to do so. I will help facilitate that learned experience. To note, as well as the commercial banking system, we are also seeing a fall in M2, which is very interesting. And I, I, this was something that kind of amazed me here was M2 has not fallen to this degree going all the way back to 1959. Although, again, as I'll mention, there was a little bit of a wonky rise in 2020, as I'm sure we're all aware. We've, if, if you haven't, go look at the Federal Reserve Economic Database and just type in M2, non or seasonally adjusted. And, you know, it's M2NS is the thing you can search into the bar. And it goes from 1959, January 1st of 1951, 1959 to, well, today, essentially. And what it shows you is all of M2, which is M1 plus the savings deposits, including the money market deposit accounts, small denomination time deposits, in amounts less than $100,000, less individual retirement accounts, and Kyog balances in depository institutions, balances in retail money market funds, less IRA, and Kyog balances at money market funds. So go take a look at M2 because it gives you a good barometer of it's a good measure of credit capital in the system. And with the growth of the global ledger, global monetary euro dollar system, really in the late 50s, M2 along with M1 and what should have been and should be continuously M3 have been growing consistently considerably since those early years. Every year, every decade, continuing, continuing, it's always growing, except for now. So this, again, raises another serious question of, we've never seen, in recent history, ever since the end of World War II, we've never seen this credit system, this system, contract to this degree. We've never seen it expand like we did in 2020. But we've also never seen a contract to this degree, not even in 2008 or 2000 or 2001 or the early 90s or the early 80s or the mid 70s. It's, it's never been to this degree. So what we looked at in the U.S. commercial banking system and now what we're seeing in the broader U.S. economy is contraction, large contraction, I would argue again. Deflation, monetary deflation, the base, the monetary base, not only in the U.S., but in the broader global economy, the global ledger is tightening its belt. That means individual banking institutions are tightening their belts. Lower lending, lower deposits, lower M2, everything is falling when it comes to credit growth. We're starting to see credit contraction. And in a debt-based monetary system like we have currently, a fiat and debt-based monetary system, this can create serious problems. And I think you're seeing some of that trying to be preempted 
by countries such as Brazil and Russia and China with BRICS, India with their, what we covered, new trading regime with Malaysia. I think the exterior world, the 90 plus percentage of human population that lives and resides outside of the United States and not in Europe, I think they see what's happening here. And I think they're asking themselves, well, why are we participating in this system? They have very little impact on us, despite and regardless of the, the role of the dollar. It's simply that. It's the currency of facilitation. And that's all it really is. Obviously, that's not to say that the dollar is going to lose reserve status anytime soon. That is a process that it takes decades. Obviously, we saw that with the sterling as the U.S. dollar replaced the sterling as the reserve currency. It takes decades. But it is happening. Absolutely. With that said, there's so much more to go through. We have updates on the bank term funding program introduced on March 12th, two days after the fall and collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, after Jerome Powell said, we have all the tools we need, so here's a new tool because we don't have all the tools we need. <laughs> Which is always the case. Uh, as of March 31st, they've done a total of 64 Point six nearly billion dollars in advances. Uh, total value of the collateral is almost 80 billion, and the treasury is providing another 25 billion. There's been interest payments on these of nearly 100 million, 93.5 million dollars, um, have been returned in interest and fees and other revenue items of value received under the facility. So Interesting that this is working, but it's not necessarily, you know, compared to the size of the repo market, the overnight lending market, if you know the, you know, 2.9, 2.3, 2. whatever trillion that's done in reverse repos, um, you know, whatever frequency of that basis is, this is pennies compared to obviously nearly, you know, two some odd trillion in lending. So we have that. That's just a quick update there. Um, we have interest rate swaps. I can't find perfect data on this. So please, if you want to continue this discussion, go listen to Jeffrey Snyder's recent video. Again, I have no affiliation with Jeffrey Snyder, Atlas Financial or Eurodollar University. I just find his <laughs> resource and insight extremely valuable. Um, and we will come back and we'll cover the marketplace on the Monday show. But for now, as always, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you all had a wonderful Easter weekend and a following few days since this likely will come out on the Thursday, the 13th of April. But again, thanks for all for listening, and we will see you all on the next one.